Welcome to this live recording of Liquidity podcast and now live event where we talk about all things venture liquidity related, including recent and soon to be IPOs, unicorn financings, direct listings, secondaries, and more. I am Doug Clinton, one of the partners at Loop Ventures. I'm joined by Gene Munster, another of the partners at Loop Ventures. And not only are we recording this conversation in front of a live audience, but we're recording this conversation in front of a virtual audience through TO. We're proud investors and supporters of TO. So thanks to Don from TO and Steve from Loop for making this happen today. And thanks for everybody who's joining us. So here's what we're going to do on the show. Jeannie and I are going to spend the first 15 to 20 minutes or so talking about a few things, specifically what the performance of recent IPOs means to the IPO markets, what IPOs we expect to happen over the next 12 months or so and what we're excited about. And then we'll talk a little bit about this current trend of direct listings, which kind of continues to gain steam. The NYSE just had some news about it last week that we can get into. And after that, we'll take some live Q&A from the audience. So Gene, shall we start? Sounds great. All right. Topic one is the current status of the IPO markets. And we've seen a lot of really big companies get out and IPO this year. In fact, we've already had a record amount of IPO value from venture-backed companies. I think it's almost $190 billion in liquidity so far this year, and that's only through September. So by far a record, the next closest year was 2012 when Facebook went public, and that was only about $90 billion. So we already double that. And so Gene, when you think about this sort of double the last record in terms of dollar liquidity for venture-backed tech companies, what do you think that liquidity means for the continued appetite of public market investors for these companies and also for private market investors to continue to invest in these companies? So I think it's important to kind of think about the trajectory of these companies going public. And the majority of them we saw kind of in the first three quarters, that metric that you talked about was through the end of September. So when we think about the setup of IPOs for like next year, I think it's important to point out that the cadence has stepped back, has stepped down. Part is because there was so much pent-up demand for IPOs that was fulfilled kind of into the public markets in the first three quarters. So I think that as far as where investors and where their head is at, public investors, they want to invest in great companies. I mean, at the core, that is their job. They want to ultimately have a return for their investors. And so to the extent that these companies are truly trading value, which is a whole other topic, which has come under light more recently, to that extent, I think is going to kind of really ultimately drive the appetite for what will be fewer companies likely next year versus this year going public. You mentioned the cadence stepping down and ultimately creating value, these companies creating value for the public market investors. I think what's sort of been tough in the market is the performance of some of these IPOs. I looked at a few of the more notable ones recently, and here's kind of what they look like since IPO to date in terms of performance. Pinterest is down about 1%. Zoom is up 91%. So that one's done really well. Uber's down 36, Lyft's down 34%, Slack is down 13%, Peloton is up 27%. 
And by way of comparison, the S&P 500 is up about 22% this year. So we're seeing these performance numbers that, you know, even though these companies have gotten out, a lot of investors have gotten liquidity. They haven't performed that well. So what do you think the performance of these means and how does that kind of factor into what you said about the cadence stepping down and value being created for these investors? So the performance essentially is going to lower the bar on the valuation, is going to create a more environment that is more scrutiny around the profitability of some of these companies. And I think that's been, if you look at those numbers, that that was a helpful recap. I think what has been uh, particularly clear is that companies that don't have that path to profitability have been under some of the most pressure. And so when we think about the IPO piece, what is more apparent in the conversation for upcoming IPOs is going to be that tractor profitability. This has been well documented. I think the extent of what has happened with this wake-up call with the venture community, it's, I think given the venture is not public, it is an illiquid market, I think the extent of that wake-up call is not fully appreciated by public investors. And so my hope is that private companies will recognize that this is a new environment they're going into and have more realistic expectations about valuation. Now, that's a hope. At the underpinnings of that is the psychology of venture capital and private investing, which is a whole other topic we can get into about how we got here in the first place. So it sounds like you're saying the relatively poor performance of some of these notable recent IPOs in the public markets ultimately will and should translate into lower valuations in the private market, despite the fact that we still have record amounts of capital available in the private markets. That's the bet that I'm making. I think that if you talk to venture capitalists, they would say that that is unlikely to happen because of some of the structure around venture capital. But that is the bet that I'm making is that ultimately some of these valuations need to be pared down. There used to be down rounds. When down rounds would happen, it would be a very clear strike against a company and its outlook. One of the benefits that we're seeing, just in terms of companies messaging what could be a down round before an IPO, is that this is across the board. This is not something that's one company is being specifically or being uh, called out on as like a typical strike. I think it is more easy for companies that are doing well to at least justify to their existing base that the climate's just different today than it was a year ago. And if we do want to get liquidity, we need to reset some of our valuation expectations. So I am making that bet. I understand it is an out-of-consensus bet that we're going to start to see some moderation around some of these late-stage valuations. Let me ask you this, then. There's been some talk, or at least some comparison, I should say, about how the current sort of mini-correction that we're seeing in these late-stage valuations is similar to the internet bubble in 2000. What do you think of that comparison? Do you think that's apt, or is that off the mark? That's off the mark. And I think the biggest difference there is that in 2000, these were dreams. These companies were effectively had a a very big vision, change the world type of mentality. They got a lot of people excited, but the business models were so nascent that they just didn't have anything to stand up when the pressure around 
you know, just building a real business increased. I think the difference here is that even though these valuations have, some of them have stepped, gone a little too far too fast, I think that they are real businesses. And I think that distinction is important. And ultimately, I'm not expecting some sort of dot-com bubble type of correction here. This is a more modest, realistic expectations around valuation. And I think the other thing too is, if you think back to 2000 versus now, now you still have a huge supply of capital in the market, specifically earmarked to be invested into venture-backed companies. And so I think you've got a little bit of this sort of captive element of the dollars there, where in 2000, number one, the money just vanished so quickly, or I shouldn't say the money, but the value trapped in some of these stocks that were well overpriced just vanished so quickly. And people could say, you know, look, I'm a public market investor, but I don't need to stay in the public market. I can invest in real estate or I can invest in whatever. So I do think there's a sort of element of capital that will continue to support some of these valuations. So I agree with you. It's not the same as 2000. But you did say something earlier about the sort of path to profitability that's been a real trend, I think, for these companies looking to go public. Do you think that just finding a path to profitability is a panacea for some of this turbulence we're seeing in the transition from private to public. I think it is an important turning point, and it may be helpful to enumerate some of the differences between private and public investing. Private investors are optimists. For a long time, as an analyst working with a buy side, the difference there is for a long time I worked with the buy side, and you could see both the optimistic investors and there are are pessimistic investors. But there was just, I think, a healthy level of skepticism that just goes through every public investor's veins. In the case of private, and we've been venture capitalists for three years, is that there is a marked difference about just kind of the future and optimism around the future. And so when we think about that relative to this path to profitability, these companies have been given a free pass and now have a greater scrutiny on that path of profitability. The reason why I wanted to talk about the differences between the two is that ultimately it's not just about checking a box and saying you're going to be profitable. It is about making some hard decisions. And that's what the buy side, the more skeptic buy side is going to want to see. And we've seen that with some companies, layoffs, for example, or in case of scaling back some expansion plants, they're going to want to see in order for this to this handoff from the private to the public to work, it's going to be, have to show three, six, 12 months that we weren't kidding when we talked about being more scrupulous in terms of how we're spending money. And so I think that is going to be kind of this transition back is when public investors can see the substance there. And so it, it sounds like you're saying that ultimately price matters, right? You can have a high price, but if you grow into it, that can still be a good investment. Or you can have a high price, but if you ultimately can build a very profitable business and grow into that price, then you can be a good investment too. But if you have a high price that you can never justify through growth or profitability, it really doesn't matter if you say, we're going to turn down the growth and we're really going to make sure and show you that we're profitable if that level of profitability never justifies the price. Exactly. And just one kind of further part on top of that is there's a view that 
ultimately, because the private markets are so flush with capital that they can backstop. I mean, you had mentioned some of that too. But just because there's a lot of money in the private markets doesn't mean that they're willing to put money to work at any cost. And so this has been a wake up for companies and the venture community. And so that kind of comes back to my belief that we are going to see some moderation in price because just because there's money in the private markets doesn't mean that they're not aware of this new dynamic. That's a good point. Yeah, it's sort of a 360 degree feedback cycle. Let's shift gears to, you know, we've talked a lot about the current state of the IPO market. And we feel like we have painted sort of a pessimistic picture, but that's probably not totally true with how we feel about it. I think there are optimistic feelings at loop about the next 12 months and some of the companies that could come out. But what are the companies that you're excited about seeing come out, Gene, kind of in the next, you know, six, 12 months as public? You know, the obvious ones, I'm just excited to see Airbnb operate as a public company and get a hold of some of those other metrics. My hope is that they approach the market in a new way. We can talk about direct listings in a minute, but DoorDash is another obvious one. You know, when you get beyond those two, you know, we talk about the cadence of companies out there. I think that it gets a little bit leaner in terms of which companies are going to be going public. And so don't have a great list beyond the two obvious ones, but I'm really looking forward to both of those. And really just one more on DoorDash. What I love about that is this is going to be a new opportunity for kind of the gig economy to get a shot at doing an IPO or direct listing right. And obviously we saw some of the stumblings around Lyft and Uber. And so that's why I'm keenly interested in DoorDash. What do you think Lyft and Uber did wrong that DoorDash can correct? I think it comes back to some of the same themes that we had outlined before, just in terms of how these businesses scale. And there is a piece of, as we look at what's kind of working and what's not working, companies that, whether there's kind of like hardware related to it or a heavy investment cycle, it's probably the better way to put it, heavy investment cycles, have not been doing well. So specifically, what can DoorDash do? It's very simple. They don't need necessarily positive economics, like in a given city. I think they just need to show some measurable improvements and they can give the buy side some confidence to draw a line from a negative margin to a positive margin. It's the same thing that we used to see just, for example, with operating margins. We always talk to companies about before you go public, you want to kind of have that trend moving positive or in positive, but with some upside in the future. And I don't think that a company like DoorDash needs to show profitability, but just an impressive movement towards that, which we didn't see with Lyft and Uber. It was this ambiguous two to three years to profitability conversation. Yeah, it makes sense. I think they have an opportunity to tell a better story, a clearer story to your point about how long it will take for them to get to that sort of profitability hurdle, which ties into direct listings. So let's jump there. But before we do that, I was going to throw out a couple other names that I think people have talked less about as IPO candidates. Obviously, Airbnb and DoorDash, it's been reported at least, have been exploring a direct listing. Other companies that I think could go public that are exciting, Stripe, they haven't really talked a whole lot about going public, but valuation-wise, they're right there with Airbnb. FinTech is a super hot space right now in the public and private markets. So I think that they have an opportunity to probably go out and be viewed very favorably by the market. 
Gusto, another one, I think, you know, HR software, and there is sort of a fintech angle to that one. And Unity, I think, is also a really, really unique company in terms of leveraging sort of SaaS-based platform for gamers, even companies like TO. I'm not sure if they use Unity or not. We do. There we go. Confirmed. So we have a Unity customer on the podcast. So anyway, those I think are also ones just for everybody that's excited about the IPO market to think about as well. Let's jump into that direct listing topic that you mentioned earlier, Gene. And as we said, Airbnb and DoorDash, both direct listing companies, potentially. And what's unique about direct listings is, you know, in a traditional IPO, a company works with a bank or several banks to sell their shares to buy side investors. And then the bank essentially allocates those shares. And the problem with that process that's been enlightened upon us by Bill Gurley, uh, VC in the Valley, is that we see these really big first day pops on a lot of IPOs. I think the average over the last 10 years is something like a 20% move on the first day. And that's money that theoretically is just coming out of the company's shareholders' pockets. And so the direct listing is the sort of cure to that problem where instead of having banks allocate shares on a primary capital raise, you work with some financial advisors who are the same banks, but you essentially are just doing an auction-based process as the basis for your listing, and you float all of your shares at once. And in theory, you reach a more efficient price for your shares. The downside is you can't raise capital through a direct listing right now. So I just want to give that context to everybody. I know we've talked about on the podcast before, but for the audience here, just to understand how that process works. Bringing it back to Airbnb and DoorDash, Gene, what do you think it means that they are considering direct listings? You know, is it sort of a sign that traditional IPOs are dead and going by the wayside? Is it just because they're the types of companies that can do them successfully? How do you think about that? I'm in the latter camp that they're the types of companies that don't need an investment banker, a syndicate of investment bankers to build awareness, to put a roadshow together, to build demand for an IPO. So I think that it is initially a smaller group. There are memories of Google's Dutch auction. And there's been periods over the last 20 years where there's a very strong conversation about we're going to start doing things different than that. The IPO model is broken. I think it's worth mentioning as we step back and take in everything around direct listings, it does feel that this is not a head fake, that we are moving to a point where direct listings are going to become more prevalent. And if we think about in the given year, there might be 80 IPOs. We're not talking about 70 direct listings next year. It's just going to be a handful. I think we're going to continue to march down where eventually the majority will be direct listings. We're going to solve the problem about being able to raise primary capital. I think that will solve itself in the next couple of years. So I think that this is an important topic. And you know there are some two major forces which we can talk about, the investment bankers and what the buy side wants. And I would just point out the buy side wants this for a lot of reasons. So I think that it is, in fact, the future. Let's dig into that a little more, Gene, because it's not an immediately intuitive statement that the buy side wants this, because one side is if you're the buy side and you're a big investor and you're used to getting IPO allocations, 
that do go up 20% the first day and you kind of have this built-in margin of safety and that's going away, you know, that's not great for you. You're probably not happy about that. Now you have to buy at market price. I guess on the other hand, if there is full liquidity at the public listing event, which on IPO is usually about 10% of shares float on a direct listing, 100% of shares float, it enables big investors to build positions more rapidly because there's more supply available. So you're saying that maybe that latter factor that they can build their positions more quickly outweighs the fact that they're probably no longer going to be getting these really big discounts. On top of that, if you look at where the capital is in the public markets, these IPOs are typically given to a group that is called 20% of the total capital out there. They're the big names that we all talk about. They're the ones that pay the investment banks the most. And so that pool of capital is small relative to the global pool, but gets essentially an unfair advantage because of the safety margin that you mentioned. So when we talk to buy side people, if we talk to people who are in the club, if you will, that typically get these allocations, they would favor to continue status quo, IPO as we've done it. But when we talk to people who are outside of that, they feel that the deck has been stacked against them. And the bet that we're effectively making is that that pool collectively, even though they're smaller increments, is greater than the pool that's been in the club. And so that's kind of at the core. And then on top of that, I think there's just been a lot more transparency with public investing and everything from how expenses are done to how trades are made, timing of trades. And I think that there is a level of transparency and level playing field that ultimately these firms that have been in the club will welcome that even though they may not have as big of an advantage, that they welcome the spirit of a more level playing field. I think that's a really great point. The, the club is inherently a small group and they may not love it. They may see that it's fair, but the broader investor community is so much bigger. I think it's better for the market in aggregate. I think that's an important thing to remember. I'm going to open up to audience questions here in just one minute, but one more, Gene, for you. If you had to make a bet, Airbnb, DoorDash, how many direct listings do we see next year between those? Is it zero, one, or two? Two. I think both of them will venture there. I know that's on the optimistic side. I'm a venture capitalist, and I am optimistic that it'll be two. VCs are meant to be optimists. I'll take one just for fun, and we'll see who comes out correct in a year or so. So let's open up to Q&A from the audience. Anybody has a question? I think we talked a lot about direct listings, and one of the key advantages of an IPO right now is that companies can raise money along with going public, and they can't during a direct listing. Do you see that changing over the next few years? The uh, bottom line is I do think that's going to change. I think a couple of years is probably the right time frame. Doug can better enumerate this, but there's been some movement. Doug can talk about that, about how we're getting there. I'll turn it over to you, Doug. Yeah, we just had news that the NYSE had submitted a proposal to the SEC about how they would structure a capital raise as part of a direct listing. I think some of the language suggested that it would be, you know, a minimum raise of like 250 million. And my guess is I think we'll see the NASDAQ very quickly submit their own proposal as well. So I think both of those exchanges are really going to push the envelope on incorporating capital raises into these direct listings. 
I'd also mention, you know, we've talked about how much money is in the private market still. And I think a really viable option for a lot of these companies, Airbnb and DoorDash included, is if they said we want to do a direct listing, I think both of them could fairly easily, despite the turmoil in the markets, raise a fairly substantial private round ahead of a direct listing. So six months ahead of their direct listing, go out and raise 500 million or a billion dollars. Maybe the valuation isn't what they would have gotten six months ago or a year ago, but I think they could definitely get a deal like that done and then go and do a direct in six months or whatever and not have to raise capital at that point. Hey, Gene, thanks for making the time. And Doug, appreciate making the time. A quick rapid fire, undervalued, overvalued. Can we go Facebook, Uber, and Bitcoin? with a quick overvalued, undervalued, and reason why? I think Facebook is undervalued. It's painful for me to say that because I just don't believe the world is a better place because of Facebook. I think that for a lot of reasons, we'd be better off without Facebook and Instagram. But ultimately is that they have this powerful way of getting advertisers. So I think Facebook is undervalued. I think long-term... Uber is probably more downside than upside, near term, I should say, long term, I think it's undervalued. And Bitcoin, don't have a strong opinion. I'll give a quick take on Bitcoin. It's going to be a more academic take, but I've always seen the logic behind what Buffett and Munger have said about Bitcoin. It's not a revenue generating asset, right? It's like gold. And so I think that the honest academic answer is that Bitcoin is fairly valued wherever it's valued at any given point in time because supply and demand is balanced. And there are no future ways to really look at it. Like technicals, uh, I think, are sort of irrelevant for this other than the extent that they influence investor psychology. So my opinion would be Bitcoin is probably fairly valued, but I have no idea where it goes from here. Hey guys, uh, appreciate you taking the time. I was just wondering, with all the money in the private markets, do you think we'll start seeing companies stay private even longer or maybe just permanently? Any reason to actually dive into the public markets? There's been certainly some talk of companies staying private permanently. I've definitely heard some people talk about that. My gut is though, yeah, I do think that you could see potentially even more extended windows between founding and IPO. And I think that's actually part of the reason why we started doing this podcast, because we've talked a lot about direct listings today, but there are a lot of other elements to liquidity that are evolving and sort of fixing these problems that come with having a lot more private capital in the market. In particular, I think the secondary markets have become a lot more liquid today than they were 10 years ago or even five years ago, where... I know DoorDash, for example, Airbnb, they have had shares available on second market platforms and that helps them kind of establish a price going into potentially a direct listing or an IPO. But I think that these secondary platforms are things that will continue to grow in popularity with investors, including institutional investors, and provide this outlet for private companies to give liquidity or help some of their you know, early employees or maybe it's early investors get liquidity, even if they don't go public. I got a question for anyone here is, does anyone think that the valuations on these late stage companies will be reset lower before they go public? Or is there just too much momentum behind, too much capital behind these companies that will just continue to support the valuations where they're at? What's interesting to me is that I think some people are like surprised that these companies are somewhat overvalued. 
But I think like you look at the history of venture, I think growth was always the key driver for venture. And so I think, you know, there's another option here where companies just need to stay private until they are profitable. I mean, almost I'd like to see more soft banks involved, still knowing that, you know, a certain percentage of their portfolio is not going to make it, which is like any fund. But if we had some more soft banks, then more of these companies could get to be profitable and still growing really quickly before they would IPO. So I'd actually like to see more money later stage coming into the industry. Thank you. Love it. Thanks everybody for attending. We really appreciate it. Love talking about this subject. So keep listening to liquidity.